a world where the ideas of the ruling class are the ruling ideas, where the polar ice caps melt into money, and the heat of profit makes even the good soft-headed. Only one small bear and his medium-sized human lady can save us. He is Knackers. She's the Vag. This summer, they'll seize the means of production and your heart. Welcome. This is an attempt to bring you critique of the status quo in the FM breakfast radio style, hence the title, Knackers in the Vag. Now, my name is Helen Razor. It's profoundly irrelevant, particularly in the present. I used to be a woman of modest prominence, but am no longer. And I've attempted to do one or two of these newfangled podcast things. And surprisingly, I find when I get onto a topic like the tendency of the rate of profit to fall or the stupidity of Russiagate or the false distinction between the so-called left and the so-called right without anybody bothering to define those terms, that I go on and on and on. And what I lack is an authoritative male co-host to say, shut up, Helen. So what I've actually got here is a small bear called Knackers. I am the Vag, refer to me as the Vag from now on, Knackers and the Vag. But happily, after an afternoon of light to moderate drinking, I happen to be joined by my former flatmate and a gentleman known to many Australians, known as Francis Leach, for his excellence in sports broadcasting, uh, his music snobbery and his ongoing soft leftism that has been pleasuring the nation for many <laughs> decades. Good afternoon, Francis. Oh, or indeed, good morning, good evening. Um, time is a, a relative um, fiction. Really. G'day, Helen, and hello to your very little friend there as well. Uh, yes. He's Knackers. In, knackers in the Vag. Do you not think that Knackers in the Vag is a name that that should exist in breakfast um, FM radio. It is. It, to me, it sounds like the sort of film that you could have, you know, um, you could do a film like Turner and Hooch, Knackers in the Vag. I, I was thinking more sort of FM breakfast radio with a gentleman um, imparting very unfunny jokes <laughs> and then the Vag's job is to go, <laughs> oh, you're awful, you You'll get a job at Triple M next week with oh, that sort of principle. one can only hope. Let's talk about employment. Do you mind? No, let's go right there. Let's get straight to it. Now, I am what you would call, I guess, a zero uh, uh, zero hour contract um, employee. Um, and you yourself are enjoying a brief sabbatical from the world of wage slavery. That's right. I've entered the new economy for the first time, I think. The new economy, which means underemployment or no employment. <laughs> that's exactly right. That, that's the polite term for it, isn't it, the new economy? Because the new economy suggests some sort of bright future yes. uh, with endless possibilities. But yes. in fact, it means you're unemployed. Yeah, I, I was, um, you know, because uh, I make my money um, doing um, journalism you know, a uh, little bit of opinionated analysis um, about the, the, the state of the world and or the state of the, the national economy largely. And you do it very well, can I say. Oh, stop. As an oh, avid stop, reader. stop you. Um, so I was at um, – actually, you can get this information at um, – well, it's a matter of record, um, but you can get this information at um, the the um, Chifley Institute, you know, um, and uh, – it's not. It's not something actually that our our Labor Party, once the party of labourers, but alas, no more, 
um, doesn't really make a huge deal of. So um, it is now currently 40% of people who uh, must work for an income. Um, Of course, there's people who need to just toddle out to their letterbox and, you know, accept checks. They're the, the, the ruling class, of course. They just sort of coast on investment and the labour of others. But uh, the vast majority of us um, must uh, work for for money. And I th- so here's a couple of things. This is from the Australian Bureau of Statistics. The median wage for Australian workers is $662 per week. You can find that on the ABS. That's, cu- that's current 2016 information. Greedy bastards with their $660. Um, and so you um, might often hear the average wage. So the average is you just, you know, you get the sort of, um, you know, a, 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 a total number and then you divide that by the number of participants in the economy. But in a time of wealth and inequality in particular, the average number is misleading. So to find out what is closer to the typical uh, income, what you really need to do is look at median figures. I know that's boring. So, okay, so let's let's think about that. Like one for all persons over 15 working in Australia, the median income uh, is $662 per week. So that's one um, sort of uh, little statistic. You can find that on the ABS. What you find from the Chifley Institute is that 40%, and this information is now about two years old, um, what you can find on the Chifley Institute website is that 40% of Australian workers are either in the categories self-employed, casual or contract labourer. Uh, and so that would include people like Uber drivers, people like me, people making it in the access economy with Airbnb or, or, or whatever. So, you know, a large number. And that, that number is even greater for millennial workers. Um, so underemployment is a huge problem of such a size that even our very slow to respond um, central bank, which is the Reserve Bank of Australia, the RBA, has said, mm, you know, maybe we should fun- factor in um, uh, underemployment to look at the labour capacity for a nation. The bottom line is people aren't earning, the, the vast majority of, of, of people in Australia aren't earning much and we're now approaching um, just sort of immediate post-war levels of home ownership. Um, the numbers of people who rent are now creeping up to about 40%. So there's a great deal of labour and security. If you are um, in a contract position or if you are in uh, a zero uh, hours contract position, you're not covered by fair work. And if you, that, that's, you know, you know what that is, don't you, Francis? Absolutely. So what we're talking about is that labour has been disempowered to an extent and to a depth that it now is basically on call 24-7 and therefore being so is unable to assert its own power. And that is a really, really dangerous place for working people to be. And that's where we are and that's where our, well, my children and, uh, and, and future generations will be, that they will not have the ability to feel any sense of permanence. And it has a whole range of ramifications for community yep. and sense of place and and sense of involvement in, you know, in planning a life, you know, yep. in a really basic sense. Like yep. I have a 29-year-old son who's only just now got his first full-time job because pre- prior to that he was always on short-term contracts and casual work. So if he now at that particular age, when I was already his father of nine years, thinks about having a family – Where's he going to go to get a loan? Where's he going to go to prove that he's got some capital? I mean, it has a whole range of 
rippling effects to the wider social economic fabric of the yeah. communities, but it serves somebody's purpose to do that and, and unfortunately it's not those who are working in those jobs. No, 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 not not at all. And, I mean, you, you know, uh, your, your son, Dylan. Hi, um, Dill. Happy uh, birthday, by the way. Uh, who's, I've known him since he was two. He's, um, he's an adorable, handsome nugget of humanity. It's, and it was ra- nugget raised by both of his parents to be a, raised very, by wolves. a very reconstructed man. And I'm, you know, sort of quite an exceptional individual. Not that being exceptional matters, but he did have. Yeah, pretty good parents, um, and, and and so was raised to strive and aim above his station and all of that stuff. But it doesn't make a fucking difference if there's no jobs. That's exactly right. And um, so you know what 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 do we do in the the current milieu? We're worrying now because we're both fucking old, right? We're both turning fifty this year. Oh Jesus! I mean, it's true. Shit, um, Alan. Oh, had a- I we just it just it just nobody gave me the manual on how to cope with that. It just but nobody gives you because we were supposed to be you and I eternal youth. We were you know. We well, were, I mean, I still you we know were Debbie Gibson, you know, eternal youth. We to, were. to be honest, I still feel fairly callow, and I still feel full of. Um, I'm sure you know um, this contraction of the the Gramsci quote, which is optimism. Um, well, no, it goes um, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the spirit. I love that so much. It's very, very good, isn't it? And um, so I, I have the optimistic will of a teenager, but the the pessimism of a ageing bureaucrat. Um, <laughs> it, 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 you know, I think this is not a bad way to, to sort of live one's life. There's the, a certain balance in, in there in, 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 the, in the current sphere. Um, but you know, I mean, should we t- so, so sort of think about, or you know, all of these statistics? It doesn't matter what you read in the newspaper, and what you read in the newspaper or the online news service. Oh, really. the newspaper serves the dickhead that owns the newspaper. So let's cancel yeah, that. But it also it also serves people who like to believe that we're still living in a sort of a mid century period where aspiration is, um, you know, is something that can still serve a particular class of people. So there was this period um, in in Australia, particularly in the post-war period, um, right up until the 1970s, where we did experience great wage growth, where it was very easy, you know, I mean, I grew up in a street where people who had um, migrated, um, you know, directly from many parts of the world, notably at that point, both Vietnam and um, Southeast Europe and, and Eastern Europe, could actually come, not have, um, you know, be, maybe be able to speak English, perhaps not even that, you, you know, perhaps not even that fluently at that juncture, but not be able to read it and still get a job um, and be able to maintain a family on on one income. Now, the way that is often remembered um, is that, um, you know, the 90, early 1970s is remembered as a time of great liberation for women. And in a cultural sense, it was. But, uh, you know, with my own mother and you and I come from similar backgrounds in that we were both sort of smart asses from working class families. Nothing's changed. Um, no, nothing nothing has changed. And we were both, I think, probably the first people in our families to go to university. Yep. And uh, so, you know, that was that was quite, um, quite old and we were both sort of fairly disastrous at university as yeah, well. ran away and joined the circus. Uh, yeah, we did. Neither of us became the lawyers that our parents had hoped to. But, um, you know, so this was a very, very different, very, very different time. And sort of going back to the 1970s, I remember when something in the economy must have shifted and my mother was compelled to go to work. Now, when people look back at that period today, they think that women went to work because they were able to. 
But something in the economy slowly began to shift as what we know as the neoliberal period came into effect. And one income was no longer adequate to serve a family because, you know, um, the price of housing went up, the price of goods went up, and now it took two incomes and not just one. And so, I mean, yes, in one sense, it's great that, you know, people in the sort of so-called left-leaning newspapers were talking about women's liberation and what have you, but I mean, I think it's also valuable to remember this other impetus for women being, you know, say, liberated from the drudgery of housework to the drudgery of the factory. Yeah, well, the particular circumstance you're talking about was also the the awakening, particularly in the Middle East, of uh, of the oil economy and the oil crisis of the early 1970s, which changed fundamentally the economics and the dynamics of... Let's not forget Nixon's gold shock. That too. So that changed fundamentally the nature of Western economies completely at a time when you know there was a polarization in the in the world between left and and uh, you know I guess you know the communist bloc and and the and the west led by the united states and those economies were fairly polarized but that changed on that that for the first time challenged the power of western global capitalism as it was known in in the 70s it was also the end of the Bretton Woods agreement which is you know where yeah. a, a group of blokes um you know agreed that in the west um that you know Gold would be the backing for all currency, and anyway, but it was look. the first. It was the first economic shock post the depression. World War Two had reset the economic boundaries for the West. The the rebuilding of Europe. Had well, there would be no USA without no. World War Two. I mean, America still makes its money on the manufacture of weapons, and you know, after um, Vietnam, I mean, the the you know all the gold reserves or much of the gold reserves were. Um, were depleted and so then we get, um, you know, the US currency is the incontrovertible truth and, you know, before that it was gold. Anyway, let's talk about some personal shit, shall oh, we? Oh, let's move from like, global like, economic just, history. I mean, you know, just I'll, I'll, look, we've had a shandy or oh, two. Oh, we just thought we were going to we've, go straight into the, Friedmanite No, no, we've, we've had monetarism a sh- look, we've, and we've had, had, had a and and uh, No, we've had a shandy or two, <laughs> okay? So we've had a shandy or two. Okay. Reset. Um, and y- y- we're talking largely out of our fundaments with the little bits of ill-remembered history <laughs> about the end of the Keynesian economic prescriptions. John Maynard the- Keynes was a great man. Oh, fuck off, Francis. He was a no, great man. No, <laughs> he was just somebody who wanted to save capitalism. And you and your soft lefty mates, you don't believe that, that, that capitalism has internal contradictions, which means that it's a period of time that will inevitably end. I mean, how many fucking lives does capitalism need to take? You, you, I mean, you know, you look at conservative estimates like the World Poverty Foundation, right? You look at conservative estimates of annual deaths due to poverty, the product of capitalism, don't even try to argue with me annually. <laughs> it is like the conservative estimate is 18 million a year. Like any dictator, any economic re- regime that is not named capitalism that you can think of in the history of meaning has not claimed as many lives as as capitalism, which is still currently led by the US hegemon. And, we, we you know, I mean, we, we, we think about this time of overabundance, right, where, you know, you get fucking molecular chefs talking about how they might be able to, like, 3D print an appetizer <laughs> for our delectation. And Please do that for me. And you're, I'm there next yeah, I mean, and you're telling me that we can't get clean water and you're telling me that the Congo, you know, this thing that I am recording this podcast on yes. um, contains the 
the mineral um, uh, tantalum, right? Which is from coltan. Where does that come from? Do you know? From from the Congo. jungle of the Congo. Can I, no, I'm just saying that. No, okay, so Congo just... is mineral rich, right? And they live in shit. Fucking tell me why. No, all I was saying. It, because capitalism is a wonderful system that will eventually lift everyone out of poverty. No, we've just been outsourcing the oppressed, outsourcing the working class to the global to the global south. You know, first we had colonization, now we have globalization, and you're still okay. So Nackers is telling Nackers me to is shut saying, up. <laughs> Nackers is saying, man, John Maynard Keynes. I'm not saying that he he's not. Personally responsible for the 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 endless dynamic of capitalism, no, fine, but he did fine. have at his heart the best interests of working class people to try to moderate the effects of capitalism to allow sure. people to ride the waves and the shocks of that particular system. Okay, of, so and in doing so, for generations, provided a working class people an opportunity to improve the quality of their life. He wasn't the necessarily the answer, but he's not the devil either. Come on, Helen. Okay. Give the guy no, 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 no. historically okay. no, a little bit of love. Let's seriously talk about Keynes. Yes, please. Keynes was um, a scholar yes. who wrote after the time of the Great Depression, um, which occurred in 1929, not dissimilar to the crisis that unfolded and is still unfolding in everyday lives in 2008, which was a um, a financialization-led recession. Uh, you, you might have found, I mean, perhaps you only came into the workforce or yet to come into the workforce because you're of that particular age since 2008. It was a great fraud of it's, greed. It's just, uh, look, and you also might wonder why the fuck we're talking about economics and how on earth it affects you. Well, it does affect you. Nothing else matters. In that, well, I mean, you know, a good deal of other things matter and you'll find, you know, I, I don't know, I should divulge this now. I'm quite fond of this guy called Karl Marx, right? Oh, Really? And Tell me about him. So Karl Marx talks about um, that. Well, what is sometimes called in his writing um, the base, which is um, you know the, the the mode of production, the way a particular society uses um, uh, uh, to sort of organise the survival of the people within it. You know, and so we call this a political economy. Um, and then the superstructure is everything else. It's us talking now. It's systems of law. Uh, you know, media, all of that palaver is the rest, and the superstructure arises from the base, and then in turn justifies justifies the base. The other thing about Marx, though, is that he doesn't say that it's all about the economy. Um, he, in the Grundrisse, if you um, uh, you know, read his his uh, his plan for his great economic theory, which was never finished because he died, he was a sick man. Oh, darling, um, he um, he talks about how these two things interweave. So it's not just the economy, or and it's not just the culture. But in in taking a view of um, any society, you have to consider how we organise the means of our survival. And the way that you organise your your means of survival is very much connected to a broader scheme. And I do want Francis and I to talk about you know sort of like the personal kind of dissonance or depression that we've experienced from having different forms of work and, you know, wildly different wages across the ages. Um, I do want to talk about that. So if you're asking why the fuck are we talking about the economy, um, it's because, I mean, you know, Francis and I are unified um, in the sense of, I mean, we both grew up in families without a lot of money. So I suppose um, it became, we, we perceive with sober senses, Yes, I guess, that um, money meant a lot because we grew up in families where we didn't have a lot of it. Well, I had nothing really. I mean, yeah. No, I, I know about scarcity of resource as, a, as somebody who grew up in a, 
community that that was the norm. And tell me about the um, the library, which which was recently opened after many many years in the yeah. Summer. So I grew up in Broadmeadows and in, in Melbourne. Yeah, in, in Melbourne, which is. And can a, you describe? Broadmeadows? Yeah, it's a housing commission dorm, uh, you know, domiciled sub, suburb. It was a. Basically, a great social experiment, post-war experiment, when the tenements of Melbourne were knocked down in the 40s, 50s and 60s to move people out of the inner city. Where were these people going to live? And, you know, in some ways, it's a very successful social experiment. There are lots of bungalow houses in that community, one of which I moved into in about 1973, 72, 73 as a four-year-old after living in the high-rise flats in Flemington. And... It was, though, very socially engineered on a number of fronts. One of them was that if you go to Broadmeadows, there are no pubs in that particular housing commission area. you know, the, the, the poor people can't, you know, Absolutely. deal with the alcohol. And we see this going on in um, the so-called emergency response, um, popularly known or unpopularly known as the intervention in the Northern Territory. Um, I think they've changed the name of emergency response now to happy futures or some bullshit <laughs> like that. But it still means the same thing. It means that um, uh, Aboriginal communities yeah. in the Northern Territory have a basic and fundamental denial of rights which should appall every Australian at all times and has been ongoing for 11 years. And one of the things that, you know, the government saw fit to do was, well, these people can't, you know, very, you know, like the absolute kind of like apogee of nanny statism. These people can't be trusted with alcohol. So that happened in your suburb Absolutely. Too. So my dad used to have to get on a train after work and go to Pasco Vale, which is about seven stops down the line, which was outside the border, and go to the Pasco Vale Hotel, then come home drunk from there. Uh, but that was just one, <laughs> <laughs> that was one example of how that worked. The other one was that they just didn't build resources for working class kids to think above their station. So we didn't have a library yeah. in in my particular community. Um, we didn't have a school that went to year 11 and 12 until about Fuck 1979. Uh, my school was a Christian Brothers College that went to year 10. There was a, a, a that about two years before I finished there, there was a an attempt by the Catholic community there to set up a year 11 and 12 school. The whole point being that we were predetermined to be the factory workers at Ford and Nabisco and all these factories. In, so in interesting. I mean, so terrible, but also so interesting. So the whole thing came to a head for me many years later, about 20 years later, I was invited back there to uh, – there was some some people who'd done well from that community who got together and raised some money to build a global learning village at the heart of Broadmeadows near the railway station so that kids could go and study. And you went to the opening, didn't I was you? asked to speak at the opening. And I remember standing on the steps of this place and looking out across from where it was, and I knew it very well. My mum and dad still lived down the hill from there, and seeing the giant police station that was built there in 1981 – as a consequence of all these kids my age, coming of age as teenagers, going into town on the train, bored out of their brains, catching the train home late at night drunk and then having huge fights and they turn into some serious And rights. unfortunately, you know, Daddy wasn't a barrister. No. <laughs> and there was some serious social unrest there. It was early 80s. Australia was full but, of... I mean, can, can, I, can I just say, though, just, I, I mean, sorry, I, I really want you to continue with this story, but, I mean, this idea that, that you know, whatever group has, has, has been corralled, yeah. you know, whether, um, you know, it's down to the colour of their skin, down to their economic status... Um, or, you know, down to their ethnicity, et cetera, et cetera. Kids with a, a lack of shit to do um, and a justifiable fear of their future or a sense of nihilism can be fucked in any class. And nothing, I just want to say, scares me more than teenagers with money on a rampage yeah. because they can cause trouble they know they can get out of. That's all I wanted to say. I'm sorry, go on. That's a very good point. 
So the police station's built and next to it, what do you build when you build a big cop shop to try to process all the kids? You build a courthouse because, yeah. you know, after they've been charged, you've got to go somewhere. So the cop shop's there, the courthouse, big imposing buildings next door, and then across the road from that I'm looking out going, oh, there's the Centrelink. Because once you've been to the cop yeah. shop and you've gone through the court system, yeah. you're not getting a job anywhere, you're, you're basically fucked. Um, you've got to go spend the rest of your time yeah. on, on, the, on the social, as I'd say, in the UK. And I'm standing on the steps of this library thinking, well, if they built this place first, they'd have a whole less need for these other joints. And I thought, well, why didn't they build it? It made sense to me because they obviously decided we had no need for it. I think you need to be careful when you're saying those sorts of things. I mean, back back in the day, so this is sort of actually we should say part of the great Keynesian planning, um, you, you know, it, it was maybe not so much that somebody was saying the working class do not deserve this. Um, it was more just accepted as wisdom. I mean, large numbers of Australians seem to believe that if you are born um, as a First Nations person, then you are simply incapable mm. of understanding, um, you know, any of the refinements of us. And even if they don't admit it, you know, you you even get like very well-meaning liberals who'll say they're a very spiritual people and they're very connected to the earth. I mean, you know, I'm sure that anybody who lives even for just one generation on land forms an emotional attachment to that land. Here in my rental house where we're sitting now, I formed an emotional relationship with the backyard. I, re- I mean, you know, I really have. I started gardening because, you know, I leased this land and um, I live in an outer suburb so, you know, I happen to have some. But, I, I mean, even that sort of speaks, even if in a positive way, of the condescension that people can have for, for particular cultural uh, slash social economic groups. And it's, you know, they might mean that with all kindness, like, we don't want to raise their hopes or what would they do with this? It's not as though somebody is sort of explicitly saying we want to oppress the working classes. It's just that these things reproduce themselves yeah, over time. So we don't want to sound like conspiracy theorists. I think that's very important. No, uh, no, I, I'm not saying it's a conspiracy. Yeah. I, I just think that there was a structure in place that pe- we served to function as working yeah. class people to do only one thing. And what I'm saying, and maybe this is at odds with, with some of what you believe, is that there are people within that milieu, that people in, who grew up with me, who never got to explore what else they were capable of. Yeah, what and, other ideas? Okay, when might you're talking them. about that kind of aspiration, that when you're saying what else I'm capable of, now they I didn't just, read I just, a book that fired their imagination. They didn't yeah. hear a record that so changed not, your life. Like it's, you and so it's so so. What you're saying is, I mean, one of the reasons um, with all the kind of like. Like the most money I've ever earned in my life is ninety thousand dollars a year, and that was in nineteen ninety eight. Um, and then when it all went to shit, and I didn't save any of it because I was young. Um, so, but even in between all of the financial vicissitudes and sort of you know having to sign on myself and all of that palaver, um, you know I've been to job networks meetings and so, oh I tell you I went to a job networks meeting. So here in Australia, what happens if you uh, are unemployed? They make it you know almost impossible for you to exist on on the, the on the stipend. Now that you're you're paid, if you're unable to uh, find employment, and they also make it compulsory for you to go to um, a jobs network or whatever it's fucking called now meeting, where you know some idiot who knows. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, you're not an idiot. I'm sorry, you're just a person doing your job. I don't despise you, um, but this is now outsourced to 
private and non-profit organisations and you're sort of told, well, you know, you can make it if you try and you find yourself in a class full of people from, this is fascinating, like, you know, quite diverse backgrounds um, and, and, and skill levels and you are given this one size fits most but actually fits no one, you know, uh, Microsoft Word uh, resume to fill out and, it, I mean, it suits precisely no one. And when I went to uh, the one that I that I did, um, it was so peculiar because it wasn't long after the Iraq war and the woman teaching the class gave us the known unknown speech. You know that one? Like uh, there are known unknowns. Donald and, Rumsfeld. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What and, a genius. Um, oh, was it Rumsfeld? It's that Rumsfeld, did it? yeah. yeah. Um, and um, it, was just, it was just so peculiar and I don't know how – this declaration. that out for? I, Well, you know, I actually mentioned this on social media. I read a Ron Barassi speech I, to you. I mentioned this on his social sense. media chat one day and, you know, some teacher that I'd never met said, well, it is very inspirational to talk about how there's no knowns but there's also, what is it, no knowns at all. You, you remember the thing. It's just a rationale for the fiction of weapons of mass destruction, right, which we here in Australia were actually very cynical about and I'm sure you – um, attended the anti-war rallies. Absolutely. I mean, it was just, you know, it was, it was, it was insane. Like here in Australia, the perception was very much that um, this was a ludicrous it was a con. war. We knew instantly here. Now, unlike in America where, now, if you still look on the Washington Post website, the fucking Washington Post, you know, and the fucking New York Times, these alleged bastions of justice and liberalism, you, you look at their editorials for the time. Yeah, which which there is one that I, I keep going back to from the Washington Post from 2003 and the headline is irrefutable. No one can question the evidence that Saddam has weapons of mass destruction. So anyway, that's what the known unknown. Anyway, she gave that 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 that, that speech. I'm sorry, what were we talking about? I we, know, but you're um, so roll, anyway, so so so, so 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 no 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 no. I, I, I'm boring even myself. Um, so. Um, yeah, yeah, what what I what I wanted to say is that um, it's 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 uh, it's important just so we don't sound like David Ike, um, <laughs> and we're not sort of like pushing you to a view that everything is controlled by lizards. There is no single person in possession of, of this information. There is no person shifting the gears. No. There are, there are very few people fully conscious of how social classes reproduce themselves and how, you know, people end up for decades and decades, um, you know, living on the insanity of but, Centrelink benefits and stuff. But, yeah, sorry? But groups have the ability to identify self-interest and act accordingly. So, you know, at that particular time, say, for instance, for the... Yeah, for the Not all groups. I mean, how do you know what your self-interest is if you don't identify yourself within a bigger political mix, though, which is what my sense of enthusiasm is for in the, in the present because I see so many young people saying there's something bigger it's not necessarily a conspiracy it's a whole lot of people with certain beliefs that have been beliefs upheld for hundreds of years and certain people behaving in certain ways and there's a machine and you can't reason with a machine any more than you can reason with a lump of coal I have to understand how the system is reproducing itself 
if I'm going to change it, maybe I need to change the system. And I, I know with your um, younger girl, um, well, woman really now, she's um, beautiful Evie, um, she's starting to have quite like anti-status quo thoughts already and starting to think of the world in a bigger way than just just her. So when you say groups are able to identify their self-interest, no, you know, unless you have the leisure and the privilege of being able to think about the world in those complex terms where it's not a conspiracy, it's a structure that has just fallen into place over time that is now not fitting the needs of the people. Have you ever read Karl Polanyi? No, of course. Oh, no. Um, you and I, Francis, we were talking um, about um, uh, having a just a Francis and Helen reading group. So I think number one on our list might be The Great Transformation by Carl Polanyi. I think you're really like – it's really kind of boring writing but a really great idea about how, you know, the economy rips the heart out of societies. Um, Is there any humane economy? Well, I would say that, um, you know, a communist economy would be, you know, just something that is – a genuine alternative to capitalism. Um, for, 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 for mine, an economy where there is no private property is the economy that would be um, one that speaks to our genuine humanity. I mean... And that would require a revolution in the minds of people in a way that would be, well, it would be an extraordinary thing for people to let go of the idea of personal ownership. I mean, it's happened, you know. I mean, it, it, it's happened, but it, it generally only happens following a major crisis. I mean, we're 101 years now um, off the back of the Russian Revolution, and yes, a, a lot of terrible things happened during the during the revolution, after the revolution, right up until 1989. But th there is no way that anyone who who you know entertains anti-capitalist or you know anarchist or communist thought can't look at the mistakes um, that happened from 1917 and, and on and on and on and say, oh, well, you know, they just got it wrong and it wasn't true. Communism, we have to address those mistakes and, you know, in order to not replicate them for a start. But, you know, you think about what occurred um, from October 2017, I mean, uh, 1917, sorry, wishful thinking, um, and it's, <laughs> I mean, it, it's extraordinary, you know, and there's this great, you know, somewhat apocryphal quote from Lenin, which is about, I mean, we can't forget all of the sacrifice that the nation of Russia made for war, first in the First World War and then again in the second. It wasn't the USA that beat the Nazis. It was millions and millions of dead Red Army bodies. I mean, you, we really have a lot to thank communism for, such as freedom from Hitler. Um, but um, so Lenin um, says... You know, this country absolutely devastated by by war had already had a small liberal revolution, had already been sort of repulsed by the monarchy. Um, this beautiful thing, again, apocryphal, a bayonet is a weapon with a worker at both ends. And it's a beautiful sentiment, right? It's just um, you're both just workers in the service of greater power. Um, the bayonet should be, you know, the, the, the bayonet is really the thing that unites you. Um, you were comrades. The person you're killing with the weapon in your hand is a, is a comrade. And I often like to, um, you know, when the young people like to talk to me, which is very rarely, of course, it's, I, I mean, I think about that experience in a much more benign way, of course, infinitely more benign way. You know, when you're in an Uber and you're conscious, if you have any consciousness at all, that this uh, l lady or, or, or chap driving the Uber 
is living a pretty shit life. And I always find, do you ever take Uber? I'm going to take one from you tonight because I shouldn't drive. Oh, you really shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, it, I sort of, I said this to uh, um, uh, Dude Muhammad, uh, five stars, by the way, very good driver. Um, the other day I just said, well, you know, um, Silicon Valley technology is a weapon with the worker at both ends. <laughs> um, he was um, a chap who knew quite a bit about the Bartis party and um, that is, um, oh, look, let's not even get into Syria. Um, but, uh, you know, he knew a little bit about communist theory and, you know, we had a, 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 a good laugh about how we were both working for the powerful. I didn't want to take an Uber because I think Uber is unethical, but it's the only thing I can afford. He doesn't want to drive an Uber because he believes the company is unethical, but it's the only job he can get. Same with weapons, you know, in a sense. But um, so, you know, let's, so it does happen and it did happen in, in the Russian revolution and it was a popular revolution and people really did want to change. And I mean, again, you think about, you know, the late 1960s when people were really envisioning, like everyday so-called middle-class Westerners were really envisioning a different way of doing things. And it is only in very recent history that it's become hugely unacceptable to say, I don't think capitalism is working so well. I think we need to maybe start another way of doing things that is more just. Yeah, I think the big question for a lot of people is organising a way of doing things that is more just, that doesn't gravitate towards a tyrannical uh, hierarchy that we've seen ha- replicated over and over again. And if I guess, you know, you talk about the Russian Revolution and its I- initial internationalist uh, vision for a, a workers' revolution of sorts which united people on the basis of their class, which quickly became, in the Soviet experience, a, a Russian revolution that was put put Russian identity first and therefore allowed Stalin to emerge as, a, you know, basically yeah. a czar in Kharkiv. We have to factor in the Second World War here. No, this is prior to the Second World War. So, in you know, when start, you know, the, the sort of the, and there's a fear that the 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 inability to check the balance of power against those that choose to be the vanguard of any revolution or change will lead to some sort of tyranny. Or some sort of, but uh, you don't think the market exchange. You don't think extracting value from the body or the mind of a worker is inevitable. No, I do. Let's just talk. But that doesn't mean we exchange one tyranny, okay. tyranny for another. So does you it? know the whole Me Too thing, right? And I know you know as a male feminist, you don't want to comment. Blah blah blah. Happily, I'm happy to comment. Happily, if I'm asked, I've had a few. <laughs> Happ- Only if I'm asked. Happily, I'm I like to talk. Okay, so we see the Me Too movement emerge in October of last year and certainly um, well sure Francis but the allegations against um you know the uh the the swine the alleged swine that started all of this this person this Hollywood movie mogul who um you know trapped women allegedly in hotel rooms um and you know basically said you know touch my doodle or never work in this town again. I mean, that's, you know, exceptionally exploitative um, and, I mean, it's abusive, it's tyrannical, et cetera, et cetera. Now, it was interesting um, at, the, at the time to, and, I mean, you know, let's, let's face it, um, to employ the trigger warning, I'm going to use the R word, to employ the, um, the phrase of the terrible um, uh, late Hunter S. Thompson, nothing catches an editor's eye like a good rape. So that's part of the reason that, frankly, Me Too has been so popular 
and let's not pretend that account after account of women being abused is not something that large numbers of people, men and women both, find very fucking entertaining because we're dark bastards. Okay. So apart from the fact that, that, that the abuse of women has long been the bread and butter of the media class, what happens then? We see account after account of things that happen in very elite places, in elite sport, in politics, in media and entertainment. There are occasional tips of the hat, a very beautiful black and white miserablest photo study of women auto workers in the city of Mich- in the state of Michigan, um, and they all happen to be women of colour. And this was the New York Times kind of concession to women with everyday jobs. And they said, see, it happens to them too. Yeah, I hated oh, You know what I hated? What? I hated the Golden Globes with all these, yeah, these yeah. wonderfully cured mm. women deciding to turn out in black dresses. Like that was going to change the yeah, existence yeah. of and people. So, yeah, and yeah. The, the power structure that has always exploited women – it's feminism for the fucking one percent is what it is. It's yeah. talking about women who are either um, recipients of privilege or proximate to great privilege, and it is not and acknowledging. Do not invite some human rights worker as your bloody chihuahua in your handbag to take to her. No, absolutely. I mean, I've written about this before and people have said, how dare you say that these women have agency? Yes, of course they have agency. And I absolutely understand um, that the um, Union for Farm Workers um, and, you know, other representative representatives from other organisations who actually do try to engage with social justice on very large, meaningful, everyday scales are happy to get the publicity. You know, if I had the chance to spruik Marxism at the Golden Globes, you can bet you I'd be there in a black gown too. And you bet I'd be, I'd be making sure that was a YouTube number one clip. And, um, you know, so absolutely I can understand this. But actually if you – actually I'm saying uh, me and my adverbs um, – there's <laughs> – a person I admire very much on YouTube, the black nationalist, or rather the brown nationalist, Yvette Carnell, well known for her um, crowdfunded YouTube live broadcast called Breaking Brown. And she breaks down in Breaking Brown the Oprah speech and the Oprah appearance. And it's actually marvellous to talk from a, 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 you know, a black and brown nationalist perspective. Not big into nationalism myself, but... Jeez, I would rather talk to a separatist or a nationalist than a liberal any day, seriously, you know, if they're of the good oppressed kind. Um, <laughs> and and she talks very – she talks about so, – so in her speech, um, Oprah mentions uh, a, a woman – and now deceased, recently deceased, from um, who was who was raped in the mid century, and her name was Reese Taylor. Now Reese was um, gang raped by white men uh, in um, this American town. Needless to impart. Um, justice was never really gained for for Reese, and how can there be justice for such an act? So Oprah uses this incident, which is an act of racist war, basically. I mean, you know, you may remember um, weaponised rape um, during the, the the multiple wars in the Balkans, you know, and how we as a world were completely shocked and there's that famous photograph of a woman um, hanging herself um, following um, the, the violation by her of, of, of soldiers, a Muslim woman. And, you know, the whole world was watching and the whole world cried and the whole world 
um, you know, praised, um, in fact, urged for US intervention in that particular war. And, you know, I cannot completely understand why people would, leaving the complex matter of the Balkans aside. But for Oprah to talk about what had happened in the accounts largely of white women in the town of Hollywood, in very elite spaces, and compare it to one of the most disgraceful acts, systematised acts of racist and sexist violence is extraordinary because this was weaponised rape. This was a way to defile this woman, to tear apart her family. It was an act of genocide. Um, it, was a, it was an act of raping the blackness out of America. And you... I'm sorry there are different kinds of rape. If that offends your feminist consciousness, just think about it for a little bit. I mean, I just my heart bleeds for my friends, uh, yeah, yeah, male, female and non-binary who have experienced this kind of thing, but there are different experiences of rape, different motivations for it. It's not always weaponized. It's always wrong and it's always tragic, but it's not always weaponized. And, you know, some grabby man being a douche you can't say that that is a part of systematised violence. Anyway, so look, Yvette does it a lot better. Yvette Carnell, Breaking Brown, look it up. So race is left out of the account as is class. And while we think that we can identify with these role models and learn from their oppression and the very common line is, if even women this powerful, you know, can't confront it, how can we? We'll fucking answer that question, bitch. You know, fucking get your feminism working. We actually have this thing called, you know, laborism. We actually have unions, you know, and unions these days have been, you know, complete, you know, they've, they've had all their power ripped apart and in some cases willingly. But if you are a member of, the un- of a, a union, if you're not, you should be. If you're a member of your union, you demand I want better work conditions. If I have better work conditions and I cannot be sacked, unlike 40% of the Australian working population tomorrow, then I can say to my boss, somebody tried to assault me or somebody did assault me. You act on it and you won't get sacked. Yeah, your economic status as a woman is disempowered to be able to defend yourself in that circumstance. And you're absolutely right. I mean, and let's not say that other abuses, other forms of abuse don't go on at work as well. I mean, you know, men are physically abused at work. It may not be of a sexual nature, but as we know, and this is one of the precious gifts that Western feminism has given us with the insight that rape has nothing to do with sex, you know, no more than any other kind of violence does. Um, I think it's a good and helpful slogan, you know. Um, So there's multiple abuses of workers and there's multiple kinds of pain. And one of them may have uh, one cause and one of them may have multiple. I mean, how many people do you know who've got a bad back from work or have got some kind of PTSD from work? Well, that's the interesting thing when you look at the United States and the sort of collapse of the social fabric there. So when they talk about the opioid epidemic in the United States. Interesting, that one, very racialised discussion. Racialised discussion, but it's a class discussion as well because what it is is an extension of the failure of uh, the healthcare system in that country, the enormous number of veterans who return with problems from their service in the United States and a lack of capacity 
for uh, veteran services to deal with their injuries. And the fact that the social safety net does not allow those people any margin. So if you're a nurse, for instance, and you hurt your back and you've got a family. Very, very likely. Maybe you're a single mum and you can't afford to lose your job, but your job involves heavy lifting. You've got to lift Mm -hmm. patients. You know, and if you lose your job, you lose your health care and your children lose their health care and you can no longer go to the dentist or you can no longer send your kids to the doctor, then your only solution is to use a heavy painkiller to allow you to continue to work because the social safety net doesn't say stop, recover and continue to work yeah. when you're well. If you're a veteran, you come back with post-traumatic stress disorder, you try to work, you can't but you're in the same situation, you need your work Mm. in order to provide the social safety net that comes with uh, the medical provisions that are in your work contract, you take said opioids in order to continue to function and they develop this incredible class of people. It cuts across all lines and classes, but predominantly working class people who rely on powerful sedatives in order to survive and eventually become addicted and fall out. So there's this false economy and a really stark one where people become victims of their poverty through addiction and then fall out of the wider community. They lose their families, they become destitute, they are no longer participating positively or contributing to their communities, and in some sense they become criminalised because of that. So the United States obviously has an enormous number of people in prison because of their... And it was the the crime bill of, I believe, 1994 passed by Bill Clinton and absolutely prominently championed by Hillary Clinton, which is part of the reason that some of us did not like our new president and, let's face it, the US hegemon rules the fucking West, so we do have some interest here in Australia about who is president. Not happy with the one that we you know, currently have, don't like that at all. But, uh, you know, the the crime bill, um, which um, by some estimates put two million people of colour in, in, prison, in prison, it was the three strikes and you're out crime bill of the Clinton administration, which made certain offences more offensive, more criminalised than others, um, one of them being the use of crack. Um, which, so it's always very interesting, this distinction between um, opioid abuse and um, amphetamine abuse. Yeah, it's only become a massive issue since white people have become. Yeah, and it's actually, of it. and it's something that the Clinton Foundation is. If you go to, um, you know, the the um, the cache of Podesta emails on WikiLeaks, I don't give a fuck what you think about WikiLeaks. All of the documents there are verified and verifiable. They're all real accounts of th- of exchanges that really took place. And if you look at Bill Clinton's speech from, I think it's two, 2015 while Hillary's on the the campaign trail. And the Clintons have long had this interest in opioid addiction. And that is one of the reasons is it's it's because it's a white people's drug, you know, largely. I mean, those things are changing now with the availability of things like the oxycodone and what have you, which have you ever had that? No. I have no interest in it. Yeah, yeah. I've never been up much. I prefer the go fast drugs myself. I mean, (laughs) don't you? Well, we, in the past, maybe. Oh, I, fuck off. Oh, in the past, maybe. It's been a while. Oh, mate. If I, if I lined up a few <laughs> rails right now, you'd be snorting like a truffle pig. Come on. You're not on the ABC now, baby. <laughs> well, try me. Um, I really don't know who to... 
there's that point in life where you realise you don't know anyone to buy drugs from, so you just ask your psychiatrist. I mean, it's like there was. There was a certain point. It was like I was about 37 and I thought, oh, better go wouldn't be bad. And I realised I just didn't know where to buy it anymore. I'm sure someone listening to this could probably tell us. Um, I'm joking. I'm joking, of course. Never take taken a controlled substance in my life. <laughs> just just like little Mr. Squeaky Queen. Clean Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, sorry, back to Keynes. Okay, look, so Keynes. Just give the guy a break, Helen. No, 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 no. no. Look, well. it's, it's fine. Like he means well. He wanted to save capitalism. And the way he, that he did no, this. No, he wanted to. I think that's. No, a, he wanted to save capitalism. Of course he did. Have you read the fucking general theory? It is the most boring thing ever. That's not the point. So so we have a, a Great Depression and we, we have great wealth inequality. And so what Keynes prescribes, this is a very, very simple view. It's K-E-Y-N-E-S. The big, um, the big book is the general theory of employment. Blah, 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 blah. So this Worked is the this is for the about big, 40 years. Well, yes and no. Well, let's not forget. And sorry, I'm not being all PC here. I'm just stating facts. That if you look, you know, in the large, what was still then the world, the West's largest economy, the USA, did not work well for people of colour. People of colour were completely left out of the the, the New Deal, um, and or largely left out of the New Deal. So, um, so Franklin um, Delano Roosevelt, um, largely regarded as, you know, perhaps the greatest president, usually the second greatest president, because Abraham Lincoln. Abe. Um, we love Abe. Oh, do we? Yeah, yes. cause, because that had nothing whatsoever to do with de- demolishing the economic power of the South. You know, I mean, yeah, of course it did. I mean, you know, but, abol- the abolitionism. Was built on slavery. Yeah, of course. And they, they you know, if they Don't had. Don't you go throwing shade at do, Abe. Do you reckon that if they'd had as, as much slave labour in the North as they did in the South, that there would have been so many abolitionists from the North? There's a great new documentary. Oh, now I'm throwing shade at Abe. No, I'm not throwing shade. I'm just sorry, saying sorry. that there were economic circumstances. Um, there's a great new documentary, actually. Look out for it on um, Google on the phone or something. you got your phone on you? Um, there's a new documentary coming out about um, Martin Luther King. Um, Martin Luther King became quite radical in his later years. He did. And he was often contrasting the, the gentle, the, you know, the covert racism of the North with the overt racism of the South and saying that he would pref- rather see one over the other because yes. at least he can see it coming toward and, him. And this is the story of this. Yeah. Uh, uh, anyway, so, you know. All right, so there was a Abraham large... Abraham Lincoln was a wonderful man. I refuse whatever, to believe otherwise. Whatever, you I'm, know. I'm hugging the teddy bear you now. You dream your dreamy dreams. You know what you're trying to do? You're trying to hold on to the relics of the idea of liberalism as a truly democratic and beautiful force. I'm telling you, like its partner economy capitalism, it has internal contradictions and it cannot fucking last. Communism can't come quickly enough. Do you think capitalism is going to solve the problems of capitalism? 2050, about four-fifths of us will all fucking be dead. If you don't believe me, call up a climate scientist, offer to take them out for a few wines, buy them a few wines, then ask them what's going to happen in 2050. And they'll tell you how many people, this is, seriously, this is something that I've tried. I recommend that you try it too. What's that? If you can get a, um, a storied climate scientist to go to the pub with you, buy them three or four wines, after three or four wines, ask them about the future of the planet, you'll immediately become terrified. 
I think I already am if I allow myself to yeah. be. Um, anyway, anyway, so, you know. The, but if you had to choose but between. I mean, what solution can capitalism bring to, to climate change? I'm not arguing for a solution from capitalism. I'm just defending the. the but that's all we have. It's ingenious of Abraham Lincoln, oh, John Maynard Keynes. And, and okay, other, so other you, like your, you, you know, you like your heroes. I understand. I do. Um, I've got, so I've do got I. to hang my hat somewhere. So do I. I love Gramsci. I love Marx. I love Rosa. You know, I love Shay. I love, you know, I'm a, I'm a lady. Um, <laughs> I love Angela Davis, although she did, she's getting a bit more moderate these days. Um, oh, you know, it's, it's so, um, you know, Gary Foley, another one of, uh, you know, I can't say he's a hero because he's still alive and he might, there's half a chance he might hear it. Hey, Gary. Um, and um, so, you, you know, I mean, we all have heroes, but I mean, if you look, Keynes was attempting to extend the life of capitalism, it simply wasn't working. Large numbers of, un, of, of unemployed or underemployed people, just like the present, they could not afford to buy the goods and services um, uh, that, you know, would keep those businesses alive. So what do you do? You introduce a program of, of welfare. And this Keynes, brings us the wisdom. Keynes this, bring, the, this brings us the wisdom yes. for national economies that what you do is that you um, you save in a boom and you spend in a bust. Now, in Australia, actually, we had a very interesting example of, of Keynesian principles after the global financial crisis. And uh, Wayne Swan, a social democrat who has just um, announced his resignation from parliament and um, I don't know whether he'll leave the Australian Labor Party, one can only dream, um, you know, he applied this principle um, to Australia in 2008, the gave best, to the best of his ability. Yeah, no, no. I mean, he did apply the 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 Gillard um, uh, Swan partnership was a Keynesian one. I mean, you can see this um, in in transcripts of speeches. They were very open. They said we were going to be Keynesians throughout the cycle. Keynesian, sorry. Um, and uh, so so Keynes is like you know. You know, uh, the idea that um, a broad economy is anything like a household economy is stupid. So say, you know, you're in a – let's debunk that quickly, all right? So the household economy, um, it's not good to get into debt. Well, of course, actually, for a start, yes, it is because how are you going to own a house otherwise? Um, so you're either you know, paying off your own debt or paying somebody else's. So you really have no choice but to get into debt. Um, you don't have a money um, printing press in your back. Yard, and the other thing you can Don't do. I? You, the, the other, the other thing that you can do in a household is you can control your spending, spending. and adjust it to your income. So if you know one week, say I only earn, um, say seven hundred dollars, um, as opposed to eleven hundred dollars, which would be the up upper end before tax of what I would earn every week. Well, then I can live on chickpeas for a week. Now, in an economy, you can't set exactly the same prescriptions because if you tighten the belts of some against their will in an economy and say, sorry, you can't have your libraries and, um, you know, you, you, you can't acquire skills in education and I'm sorry, we're going to cut you off from, well, not even, I'm sorry, really, we're going to get a robot to cut you off from your Centrelink payments. Now, what happens in a broader economy when you do that? Well, people don't have even more money to spend um, on goods and so you deepen the depression so that's, you know, one of the insights of Keynes. So, you know, like, yeah, no doubt, really clever dude. And those prescriptions, which wouldn't have actually been taken up if there wasn't 
the communist working alternative oh, no, look, at I, the time. Absolutely. And, and, and that, in the US. And Franklin um, D said that he wasn't a Keynesian. Like a lot of the stuff, you know, he took a little bit from Keynes. But, I mean, when we say Keynesianism, you know, often we're also referring to FDR. But, I mean, it was basically the same. It was like... So he made all well, these. Well, Eugene Debs and, and the internet. Oh, my God. I mean, I love Debs. I just dropped that name in there. So I mean, know. no, I fucking I love. I know you do. I mean. International workers of the world, I, the wobblies. You know, I mean, seriously. You know, but Debs is amazing, right? He was. Um, you know. And but that was also built on a, and I'm saying this. So, uh, so, I mean, Debs was by no means a Keynesian. No, no, no. He was a communist or he's a socialist. And, and, F- and FDR was, you know, a rich dude. Um, you know, a lot of his, you know, the good parts of his superego were provided to him by his wife, you know, like Eleanor was. Ellie. And I'm not being some kind of like feminist, it's always the woman behind. But she was actually much more progressive than him. But, but these were people But like, I mean, he, he went, you know, he, on the one side of him, he had the communists saying, we're going to have a revolution. They're not having a depression in the Soviet Union. So he had like, you know, like wobblies, you know, actual communists who were threatening revolution. Saw what was happening over in Germany. Again, fascism, not a great idea. Um, I think we can safely say that. We can safely say that, but at the same time, Stalinism wasn't great either, was it? So it was. Dif- oh, for dif- fuck's sake! No, tyranny- of course, it was a failed experiment. We keep trying capitalism in its very inter- various iterations over and over again. You know, there's been you know, one significant, maybe two. All right, let's say two significant attempts at a stab at at at, at communism, Pol and Pot, and we and three. we. Say, Oh, come on. That was a US-led fucking massacre and you know it. You know, I mean, yeah, I know the guy was like a loon, but, I mean, you, you, how can you keep saying that it is only communism that ends in massacres when oh. how, you know, uh, what, how, what was it? I think I can remember. It's 26,171 bombs detonated by Obama in the last year of his presidency. Also under Obama we see the, 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 the devastation of a Médecins Sans Frontières hospital in Afghanistan. And I am not by any means saying that Trump is a nice guy, but, I mean, come on, please. How can you attribute um, violent crime to communism only when we see it ongoing oh, in the US? No, I wasn't justifying any of those acts, but I'm just saying that the, the alternative isn't necessarily one free of similar tyranny. No, 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 abs- absolutely not. And, you know, there's... You know, and there's there's likely no perfect system. But just as you were talking about, you know, the lack of resources and the sort of the 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 the, the covert ideological condescension which results in taking things away from people we don't think that deserve them. No alcohol in broad meadows. No, no alks. Al- no alcohol in the Northern Territory. No one ever. For years, there was there was internet censorship in the Northern Territory. You know, and this ridiculous idea that a place where there's absolutely no jobs and you get idiots like Tony Abbott saying that it's a lifestyle decision for people to live in remote communities. I mean, that can was just, just... Can we just talk about that for a second? For fuck's sake. I mean, it's look, a why... decision. Why even <laughs> talk about Tony Abbott? He's fucking insane. It's not... Like, ultra-right racists, they're fucking beyond my help, you know? You're not, Francis Leach. With your love of Keynes. No, Keynes is fine, right? But what happens? See, capitalism has cycles and it changes its nature. And what worked at one point to extend the life of capitalism won't necessarily work again because our economy has changed in some quite remarkable ways since that time. And there's this guy who writes this paper called Kalecki uh, called oh, something like 
the consequences of full employment. I'll, if I ever get around to uploading this and or doing show notes, I'll, um, it's just a seven-page paper written in the late 1940s. And he says, what will happen eventually if you run a full employment economy, and by full employment we mean employment for one person in every household, almost always a man, and if you run a full employment um, economy, what will eventually happen is that workers get too much power because they know they're always going to get a job and they can make demands of the capitalists who employ them. And, and what will happen is that the, the, the profits from those companies will be reduced and um, lo and behold, this is what happens in the early 1970s where we have the phenomenon of stagflation where you get, you know, a very stagnant economy um, accompanied by high levels of unemployment and also high levels of inflation. And that's when you get Can the ask? reset, which is called neoliberal economics. And the fathers of that are really, well, I mean, it's a reworking of classical liberalism, but it's 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 Hayek, it's von Mises, and it's the other shitter. Can I ask you, given all of the, that you've said, is there is there a period of time in the last hundred years where you see that uh, an economy has run or has it been tracking towards something that you would consider ideal? No. I mean, for goodness sake, no. I mean, it's just, I mean, I see moments of sort of great hope. I mean, well, around, well, well start with that. Mo- moments of great hope, okay, around the time of the Russian Revolution around the world, you know, you see workers organising um, and then you see, you know, there's this great quote from the German ideology, which is um, the ideas um of the ruling class are in every epoch the ruling ideas. So you see these countervailing ideologies. So what about um, the British welfare so, state after World War Two? You know, I mean, you know, Attlee got in for a reason, and these are, you know, these are, you know, good good things. But um, you, you know, and they save large numbers of people. But for the reasons I just described, under capitalism. They are only sustainable for a while because what you end up getting is stagflation. Now, I'm not saying that don't have a welfare state. You know, I live in the real world. I live in a capitalist economy. I want to hold on to the protections um, or I want to reclaim the protections, um, you know, in, in in one sense that we that we once had. But, you know, you permit workers too much power. Workers will seize that power and workers will make demands of their bosses and then the bosses will lose profits. It's just going to happen. And in a capitalist economy where you require growth in order to stay in business, well, that growth is impeded by demands of the worker, which is kind of like the argument that the Turnbull government is making now by reviving a now utterly discredited system of techniques that we call neoliberalism by saying, oh, we need to give companies tax breaks because, you know, they'll employ people. Well, bullshit, they'll employ people. What they'll do is they'll use their extra cash to fucking, you know, invest in their own companies and artificially raise their share prices. Share buybacks are completely legal. I don't understand why or how, but they are, or they'll do like Apple does and just keep a massive cash reserve um, and just, you know, smash other people. So, I mean, look, this is my view. And I spent last summer reading Capital by Karl Marx, except for volume two, which is too fucking boring. It's got all these equations it's like, in it. It's not like, you know, the follow-up to Fifty Shades. Of destruction. <laughs> it is exactly like Use Your Illusion. Yeah, you've got like Capital Volume 1 is Appetite like a- for Destruction. It's like fucking all killer, yeah. no filler. And then you get Use Your Illusion 1 or 2 and it's like Volumes oh, 2 and 3. It's his November rain. <laughs> it's, it's, it's 
totally that. It's totally that. It's like <laughs> it's like. Did Fifty Cent ever follow up his first album? Well, it would be I that would be a similar. There. Yeah. Um. And and so I mean that was great. You know. That, remember that moment in time with. Where 50 Cent you know could have been Kanye. I'm at Stormzy now. I've gone grime. I've discovered Stormzy. I'm South I'm South London. Oh, don't I'm do that. I'm down with grime. I love it. You know, they all love Corbin, don't they? Yeah, South London. I, I mean, I just can't help getting a little bit excited about what Corbin represents, which is a new consciousness. Um, so, anyway, so, 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 no, but I mean, you're talking about things that, that you know, the, 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 that governments do. Um, responding um, to economic conditions. What excites me more is what people do. This is where politics takes place in our everyday lives, in the way we apprehend things, in the way we interact with each other. Um, everything is political. Don't let anybody tell you. We're very happy we to say. We agree about that. I yeah, do, I, we're very happy to say the personal is political. We we rarely ever say that breathing the, is political. The, the political Shitting is, is political. Well, you know, breathing could very well be political. political. I, I don't think it's sort of out of bounds to say that you know the air might not be considered common property in the next twenty to thirty years. Oh, it might shit. be privatized. Well, I'm going to you see, pay for that as well. But you see the privatisation of water and, I mean, you know, all sorts. I mean, it's you know, the privatisation of fucking prisons. I mean, I mean, I'm fucking opposed to the very idea of prison. But um, it's just, I mean, you know, the, the idea of incarceration, the idea of so-called justice is appalling. But, I mean, so many things are privatised. So, you know, this is, this, is, this is what happened, the thing that we call the commons, the thing that we share, the things that we, we share, the things that we see as property of all the people. Well, that's getting narrower and narrower, isn't it? Unfortunately, true. Um, so, so, you know, we still see the Turnbull government saying, well, if you give benefits to companies um, that um, these will trickle down. Um, Does anyone buy that bullshit anymore? Well, you know, I mean, even When you look at the, the – there's any level of evidence uh, on the, the fact that companies instinctively okay. and intrinsically avoid paying tax at every possible point. Well, I'm sorry, everyone would. I mean, you know, like life is a battle under capitalism. Like, you know, whether you're a merchant, um, you know, a small-scale merchant – um, you, you know, or whether you're a high-stakes financier. How about you pay the tax you already owe us before you ask for a cut, you dickheads? Well, you know, the, the, the fact is, by the rule of law, they do not owe tax. So fuck the rule of law. You know, it's just what, my solution would be why don't the workers run the company? You know, I mean, why don't the workers own the company? That would be good, wouldn't it? That wouldn't discourage innovation. How would that discourage innovation? Wouldn't everybody work harder if they thought that the dividends that they got as part of their arrangement with the company? If they could believe that the people were delivering the dividends, and because there will be, but no, I mean, a but, but, but so that. you know, like the the sort of, I mean, and you still can have um, collective organisations under capitalism. So, 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 what about that? What about if somebody who works the line also has, you know, um, a temporary position on the board? You know, also has some time because with management. Because people don't trust. There's a, there's not a Hugo Chavez or a. What's wrong with Chavez? Oh, okay. Come on, what's the fuck's wrong with Chavez? The, the I mean, you, you're telling what is wrong with Chavez? Look at the country as it is now. Oh, oh, and the US, and that's all because of socialism. It has nothing to do with the various secretaries of state that squeeze that country fucking dry. I'm sorry, we've always said that socialism only works in an international context. And when you have the hegemon, you know, just above you saying, you know, we're, 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 we're going to still, you know, not let the, the, um, 
the the new secretary of of of, of state um was Tillerson. I mean, he's still making, you know, he's still making um, advances, uh, you know, saying saying things about how they're going to crush Venezuela. And I mean, look at how they crushed Venezuela. And you're really telling me it's Venezuela's fault? Not Venezuela's fault, but my point being... I mean, that wasn't a failure of socialism. That was a fucking antagonism of capitalism. Well, it was both because what he did did was deliver... All right, we're getting... We are. All right. His economy was based purely and simply uh-uh. on his oil resources, and once that tanked, he, oh well, I'm sorry for not being a developed economy which has intellectual property he, rights and finance like the USA. You know, I mean, I mean, let's look at Libya. Are you going to say? I mean, not that Gaddafi ended up being particularly socialist, but it started off as a socialist country. Yeah, are, you, then, are you going to say Gaddafi, naughty, naughty? You relied on being a mineral-rich country. You know, you're going to say to this little country, which, by the way, before the invasion, which was led by Hillary Clinton and resulted in many, many deaths of many, many Libyans, which, you know, I mean, caused all sorts of, no, of we problems. Can't defend, we can't defend Muhammad Gaddafi. Oh, my God. I'm a, sure. And the, but, okay. Loro and the so, No, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You can't, any... defend, you can't defend Gaddafi, but you can d- defend Hillary Clinton's decision Hillary to Hillary. go in there for no fucking reason other than, um, you know, the man was killing radicals, okay? Not nice, but aren't we also killing radicals? I wasn't, wasn't defending Hillary Clinton or anything. No, but you say I'm not defending, but don't be so, you know, black or white about it. I'm not defending Gaddafi either. But, I mean, that country was, um, was, was oil rich too. That was their chief export. And let's not forget that the people of Libya, whatever you have to say about Gaddafi, enjoyed the highest standard of living in the continent of Africa. Now it's did a political... it not matter that they couldn't vote for their leader? I'm sorry, what kind of choice did we have in the last American election? Vote for a bullshit artist or a fucking liar? What choice is that? So democracy is pointless? But it's not a democracy. So what is a democracy then? <sighs> a democracy is the thing that we're talking about and um, it's a dictatorship by the people of the people We've been going on for way too long. Yeah, but it's been fun. I just want to talk about work again. (laughs) I just want to talk about work again. Um, You're having a few months off and you're just thinking, I don't really want to do anything much at the moment. Pretty much. And I don't want to talk to you. You're much more interesting. Anyone I've spoken to talking about footy or any other nonsense for a while. But but that's all fine. I mean, footy can be fascinating Uh, to talk about. And it's one thing that gets men passionate in this nation when they talk about it. And it's Well maybe they need to read a few bloody books. Well n- no, I think it's fine not to give a shit. It's fine my ideal is to have a world in which people don't have to give a shit about the boring shit that you and I talk about, right? We don't have to. You're not a better person just because you happen to be interested in political economy. I think you are, actually. You're fucking not. You are. You're fucking not. No, I want a world where people can talk about their hair. I want a world where do people both. don't feel pressure. I don't want I want a world where people um can see um a country as opaque or a world as opaque because nothing bad is happening but to them. But how about you be both? How about you be inter- you can't you know, don't be a moralizer. Don't be a moralizer. It is not better to be one kind of person than another. Okay, you and I are fucking working class upstarts who have extraordinary smugness and intellectual pride because we were the first people in our families to go to university. Peak smugness. Yeah. Okay, and that's how we define ourselves. And so we've decided that this set of characteristics makes you a better person, makes us a better person. That is entirely due to our vanity. 
Indeed. Would okay. Any, having listened to this, if you've come this far, any, would anyone love to have a dinner party with Helen and I? No, shit, we're awful. Um, <laughs> but, sweetie, look, we're – It would be fun. Um, we'd make sure you got a word in. Um, Francis and I used to share a house. It used to sound a lot like this. Um, and Pretty much. Uh, yeah, he mistakenly thought that I was defending Gaddafi's crime. I mean, who cares if you get to vote, really? Let's even talk about Navalny. Oh, yes. Next time. Uh, I mean, let's vote for a Nazi. Awesome. Alleged Nazi. Um, in case oh. Navalny is cross with me. So I'm the defender I mean, just, of just weak say, neoliberalism. You know, uh, well, you know, I think you need a little work and I think um, I'm not going to start you off with Polanyi, but I think I'm going to start you off with a bit of hard Karl Marx. Hard Karl Marx. I love, sounds um, like something on... Um, you know, Francis, Born, maybe you maybe you'd like to maybe you'd like <laughs> hard. Um, maybe you, maybe you'd like to come along to Marxism twenty eighteen with me. It's during the Easter long weekend in Melbourne at um, the Victorian College of the Arts. Who needs a comedy festival? I'll go to that instead. Yeah, all right. I'll be funny. Oh no, I won't. <laughs> Darling, it's been lovely talking Helen, to you. I'm you know sorry I, I fed you. you so many beers and myself. No, it's been great. And um, Should I catch an Uber home and just indulge in the shiftless you're just a con- deer of the. Um, you're you're you're, you're you're a consumer on um, a limited income, so I am. you're you're okay. See this t-shirt I'm wearing? Yep. I betcha it was sewn by a woman who is now dead from the Rana factory collapse. She so because it cost me four dollars at H and M. So um, the family can know it looks great on you. That's um, thank you. Um, I, it, no disrespect to H and M. I just disrespect to capitalism. Um, don't fucking sue me. Bye. Bye. <laughs>